Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Taking a bit of a break from 1 Corinthians today. There will not be communion today, just in case you were wondering. Um, we, the last three weeks we had communion. Today is the second Sunday of the month, but we'll return to communion on the second Sunday next month, okay? But today we'll be in the book of Ephesians, covering the passage that Jerry raised, uh, read for us at the beginning of the service. Do you want Christ? Because I, I hope that's what you'll get this morning. That's truly about all I have to give, and I hope you see Him through His Word today. Look at verse 4 with me. I'll read a couple verses, then open with a prayer. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, there's one particular aspect of this text that I want us to think through, to marinate on today. Um, it's so critical to our salvation if we understand it. It's important that we emphasize it in our conversations with those who believe they can earn something with God. And I hope we see that this morning too. And I want to tell you that grasping the truth that I want us to dwell on this morning, it will change our lives if it hasn't already. It will change your life if you lay hold of it. But context is everything, isn't it? There are several verses before the verse I want to emphasize, and we have to start with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 and look at the terrible condition of all people. Paul here is speaking to the former reality of the Ephesian saints. He's describing what was true for them up to a certain point, and he's going to explain what happened in the verses that follow. But in these first three verses, he's explaining what was true for them, what their reality was, what they were faced with in this life. And in fact, it's what all people in our natural state face. Look with me at verse 1. Paul writes to them, "'You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit.'" that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The apostle says to them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And the first thing I want you to see, in case you miss it, is that trespasses is plural and sins is plural. You see that in verse 1? Multiple trespasses, multiple sins. The Ephesians, just like everybody else born into this world, 
their offenses toward God were various and sundry. There's no one who's ever lived, no one you've ever met that has just one little vice, that has just one little problem. There may be one thing that you struggle with in particular. There may be one thing that people define you by, but in God's sight, in your natural state, the list of trespasses and sins is long. Dead in trespasses and sins. The end of verse 3 indicates more about this state. You see where it says, By nature, all people are children of wrath. Paul says, You too were, past tense, were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. The rest of who? Well, all of mankind. And this indicates the issue. This points out the problem is by nature, we are fallen, we are sinful. By nature, we have wrath as our parents, children of wrath. There's not one person born into this world that has God as his parent. God is his maker, God is his creator, but because of his condition, he is in need to be adopted by God. This is the great doctrine of adoption that we have through our salvation in Jesus Christ. It is available to you. God can be your father. You can be his child, but by nature, wrath is your dad for all people, no exceptions. This means, this fallen condition means that your intellect and your will, your heart and your mind are totally fallen, depraved, corrupt by nature. It's not that they're non-existent. They definitely exist. You have these capacities as a human being, but in your natural state, your heart and your mind have been so corrupted by sin that you're unable to please God. That's the testimony of Scripture. There's an inability to please God in any way. The result is absolute deadness. There's a myth out there that many people believe, many people are taught, that you're born into this world neutral, that you're like a free agent and You've got good and bad, righteous and evil trying to recruit you, and you're free, and you can choose moment by moment, hour by hour, you can pick which one you want to follow. That is a myth, friends. In your natural state, you're dead. You're dead in your, in your trespasses and sins, that long list of offenses toward God. You are unable to honor God as He is to be honored. You're unable to worship God truly from the heart. You're dead. You're not a living neutral. You're a dead sinner by nature. But deadness doesn't mean inactive. You run your eyes over the, these verses, the first three verses. There are actions that are occurring on the part of the natural sinner, the one born into this world under sin. There's much activity, sinful activity. We see that the will of man is not obliterated, but it is locked into its nature. The will can certainly be exercised, but only within the confines of the nature. And by nature, children of wrath, how do they act? Like children of wrath. They exercise their will, but in total cooperation with how their nature is defined. Look at verse 2. Paul says to these Christians, you formerly walked 
in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in them, verse 1, and you walked in them, verse 2. This is the first activity we see here, walking in trespasses and sins. When you see in the New Testament that word walking used, it's used by several authors in a lot of different ways. It just refers to your manner of life. So here the apostle is saying that your manner of life in your natural state is defined by your sin. How can we sum up the manner of life of a child of wrath by nature? Well, he goes about walking in his trespasses and sins. His life is summed up this way. It's what he's doing. He's continually acting in accordance with his nature. The second activity we see is there in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. There's a walking in trespasses and sins according to this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. By nature, those in sin, which again is all people born into this world, are followers of Satan himself. Now, this doesn't have to be consciously. Of course, not many of you would think back to your time before you were a Christian and think, oh yeah, I was following Satan. Many of you have never even seen a Ouija board or something like that, let alone used one. So don't let your mind just jump to the occult and say, well, that wasn't me. There's more to this, isn't there? This is deeper, more complex, more varied than we give, give it credit. All people in their natural state are under the lordship of the God of this world. Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God has granted Satan a measure of influence in this world. It's not that they are eternal coexisting forces fighting against one another. God is supreme over all, and that includes Satan, but He has given Satan a measure of influence in the world. And we're learning here in this verse that even the Ephesian Christians, it could be said of them as a blanket statement that in their former life they were walking according to Satan. They were under his influence, and in this sense, the devil, the evil one himself, the enemy, leads all sinners. He affects the thoughts and the deeds of all people in their natural state, not just getting them to do things that are blatantly wrong, but getting them to think evil things, to think wrongly about God, to consider the things of God pervertedly. The demonic realm empowers and fuels disobedience toward God. And this is comprehensive. It's not just for a group of people that say, Hail Satan together. It's for all people in their natural state outside of Christ. They are under the influence of the evil one. All children of wrath, all sons of disobedience, the phrase that we see in verse 2, are deeply influenced by that same evil spirit. That's all people. So that's the second activity we see. And thirdly, in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In their natural state, people carry out the passions of their flesh. It's all there is to do. Who else's will will you submit to? But you submit only to yourself in your natural state. You are your own God. You call your own shots. You are your own compass in this life. 
And this is the life of all who reject God. They live to satisfy themselves. Think of the most seemingly selfless people that you know, because that's, you know, a common retort. Well, there are people who seemingly live so selflessly. Even those people who appear to be selfless, there's something behind what they're doing. They're either looking to earn something from God, which is wrong, fallen, depraved thinking. They're seeking to be seen by others, to be recognized by others, to be seen as an example, to be lifted up in the sight of other people. Or otherwise, they're just seeking to prove their goodness apart from God. Look what I can do apart from God. I am still a good person apart from God. Do you know how fallen that thinking is? Do you know how rebellious that thinking is? To say that I can be good apart from the only one who is good. When Nicodemus came up to Jesus and when others came up to Jesus and spoke to him, he was quick to point them to God. When people would call him good, he would say, there's none good but God. That's a deep truth that we have to embrace because all people in their natural state carry out the passions of their own flesh. Their guiding principle is not that different from what we see in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges doing what is right in their own eyes. That's where we're all left outside of Christ. That's where we are. We're born into this world because of our father, Adam. We're born into this world where we're just doing what is right in our own eyes, apart from submission to God. And this is the ultimate sign of spiritual deadness, when someone doesn't appeal to God for righteousness. When that person thinks, I have my own righteousness, That is a sure sign of deadness. When someone doesn't agree with God and saying, yes, I have no righteousness of my own, have mercy on me, a sinner. When someone rejects that thinking, they're showing their deadness. They're showing their spiritual state, which is totally depraved. They're not submitting to God. They're not agreeing with God. They are in rejection of what the God of the universe has said. And this was the state of the Ephesians. If you just had verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians, you would read it and say, wow, that wasn't very encouraging. But you see how verse 4 starts? But God. You should say amen after that. But God. Thank you. Are you, are you awake this morning? Are you alive? The state they were in was dead. But God. <laughs> There you go. Now you're getting it. This was the state of the Ephesians, and this really was the state of all Christians. That means you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You have to realize that. You have to embrace that. Spiritually dead. Until God came along and changed your life. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, purpose, what's the purpose? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in 
Christ Jesus. I want us to look at verse 7 and start there. To start with the end, what is the end of this action of God? Why did He save the Ephesians? Why did He save you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today? Why? Why did He do it? Verse 7 tells us why. He's putting His goodness on display that He might show. You see that little word, show? It means to put on display, to reveal to all people. He's putting His goodness on display through His chosen people. He's glorifying Himself. He's making His name famous. He's making Himself magnified through the lives of His people, through this salvation He has delivered to the saints. These things that we're about to look at in verses 4, 5, and 6, God has done to magnify Himself. You've been chosen to make much of God in this life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just bringing joy to your soul? If you know God, it is. And notice in verse 7, He's showing the riches of His grace in kindness toward us. That little word, us, is important to track through this section. Toward us. Who is the us here? Well, it's those who believe. It's not just the Ephesian believers. Paul wasn't a member of that church. When he says us, he's talking about all believers in all the world for all time. God is showing His goodness, the riches of His grace in kindness toward us. Let's look back up in verse 4 and find that next us here as we start in verse 4. God was rich in mercy and because of His great love with which He loved us. God's love. He showed us love, those who believe. This is the foundation for God's actions, His love. Think of Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates, shows, puts on display His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did the cross happen? Why did Jesus die? God was demonstrating His love putting His love on display. Think of 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. The motivation here is love. What drives God's actions? It's love. And all that He does in this salvation that's been delivered to us, He loved us. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. God comes to dead men, and the result is that spiritual faculties are awakened. A soul is re revived. You're born again. When God comes to a dead sinner and touches a dead man, the result is life. When a person is transferred from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light, there's life because of the action of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, it says of believers, 
are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and, and among those who are perishing. So you know what this means? You don't smell dead anymore. Dead bodies stink. But now you are a sweet-smelling fragrance to God because you're alive. You've been given spiritual life in Christ. You're made alive with Christ. What an amazing thought. And He saved us. Look at verse, the end of verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ, and then in parentheses, by grace, you all have been saved. All those who know Jesus, all those who have faith in Jesus are saved. He saved us by His grace. We are identified as the saved. We are the objects of God's power. You know what Romans 1.16 says about the gospel? Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. If you are saved, you're the object not only of God's love, not only of His grace, but His power. Because you were resurrected. You were brought to life. You're no longer in the grave. You're no longer sitting there smelling as a dead body. You're no, fo- you're no longer following the prince of the power of the air. You're no longer influenced by the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, but you're influenced by the Holy Spirit. You're given the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. He's empowering you. He's bearing fruit because of God's power to save. And then verse 6, I want us to dwell on this. This is what it's all been leading up to. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I want us to marinate on this, particularly for our local conversations, for our evangelistic conversations. I mean, first and foremost, I want you to understand this for your own soul, but I also want you to be able to articulate this about your salvation to those who have not yet believed. He has raised us up with Christ, and He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. First, we have to understand our identity with Christ. Look back at chapter 1, same book, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. God here is telling of His power and strength. Paul is saying that God's power, God's strength is brought about in Christ. Verse 20, He brought this about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Sound familiar? Raised Him up and seated Him in the heavenly places. Verse 21, where are the heavenly places? Well, they're far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So what Paul was saying that was true of Jesus then is true of Jesus now. You think, well, all these world powers have risen up and and the gates of hell are shaking at God's church, but it's no different now than it was then that Jesus is king over them. And Jesus will build His church and Jesus will have all rule and reign and dominion and glory forever and ever. Nothing can stop King Jesus. 
because he has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. You have been raised up with Christ and you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever dwelt on this? Notice it's past tense. This has happened. It's already happened. You're exalted with Christ right now. We've got to press this home further. Colossians 2. You can go forward a couple books. Colossians chapter 2. Let's start at verse 12. Colossians 2, 12, and then we'll jump over to chapter 3. Speaking of believers, Colossians 2, 12, what has happened to us? It says that we have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Now, this here is not talking about water baptism. There's an easy way to understand that. You see that we've been, go back to verse 12 if you would there, Walker. It shows that we've been buried with Him in baptism, and we were raised up with Him through faith. That doesn't mean you go down into the water to show that you're buried with Him, but we don't pull you up until you have faith. That's not what that means. But as the Holy Spirit has come into your life and washed and regenerated you, Titus chapter 3, as He comes and interrupts your life, as God does this in His saving power, the result is faith, and you are totally absolutely identified with Christ, not only in His death, but in His burial, resurrection, and ascension. You've been raised with Christ through faith. Chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's exalted. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. What is your life? And where is your life? The answer to that is the same. Jesus. You have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ. And where is Christ? He's exalted above all rule and authority. He's in the heavenly places. He's seated at the right hand of God. So set your mind there. When you are converted, when you come to faith in Christ, when you're born again through the living Spirit, the eternal Spirit, there's a shift of position that takes place. A spiritual shift that happens at your conversion, where you are no longer considered an earthbound dead sinner. You are now considered to be alive in the heavenlies. You are now considered to be exalted in Christ in the heavenly places. You are now seen totally, completely in Christ. You have full and total access to the Almighty, and God sees you only in Christ. He doesn't ever see you apart from Christ. He sees you totally wrapped up in the identity of His Son. 
You've been given the identity of Christ in this life, and it doesn't stop with His death. It doesn't stop with His resurrection. It goes all the way through to where He is currently seated in the heavenly places. That's where you are. God sees you there already. Now, of course, there's a connection to what's going to happen in the end. We're living in an already not yet aspect of this, aren't we? This is a spiritual reality, but you're in this body and you probably don't feel exalted most days. You probably don't feel the righteousness of Christ in you most days. Look at verse 4 with me again, Ephesians 3 verse 4. When Christ who is our life is revealed, now we're looking to the future, then at that time you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So there's something that's going to happen in the future that we're still awaiting. And we see this throughout the New Testament, the final glorification of the believer, a final exaltation of the believer at the coming of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection and the effects of the resurrection, its implications. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. We're in between right now, aren't we? We are material and we are immaterial. You have a body and you have a soul, and your soul has been renewed, refreshed, and this body is waiting for a day when mortality will put on immortality, Paul says in that chapter. It's a coming day. It's not yet. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, "'The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed.'" and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, again, there's an aspect in which we're already in the heavenly kingdom. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and yet we're looking forward and we're able to say, He will bring us there. Already, but not yet. And as we revisit Ephesians 2.6, go back there, Ephesians 2.6, I want to again highlight the present reality of our exaltation, keeping in mind there's a future physical glorification that's going to take place. Look with me again at verse 6, and again, notice the past tense nature of these verbs. God raised us up, past tense, with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been in the past, as Christians, we can say this, raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. All people who have eternal life have this reality. All people who have believed in Jesus, who are heaven-bound saints in the eyes of God, can say, I have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You can claim that promise today for your own. It's not for a select group of people, except for Christians. If you are a believer today, This is true of you. You have been permanently united to Christ in God's realm. You have been permanently, that means unchangeably, united to Christ where He is. Your identity is totally, fully, completely, utterly wrapped up in Jesus. There's no part of your identity, spiritually speaking, that falls outside of Jesus. 
You are His. You belong to Him, and no one can reverse that. It is an act of God. Remember, you are dead. You are lying there dead. You were following the prince of the power of the air. He was your Lord. But now, Jesus is your Lord. God has totally changed your life if you're a Christian. He's given you new life, and He's given you a purpose in this life. Notice, too, in verse 6, that Jesus is seated. We don't want to just gloss over that. He's seated. Why is Jesus seated now? It's because of the last words He cried out on the cross to Telestai. It is finished. The work is finished. You can only sit down when the work is done. The priests in Israel, year by year, they were going in and going out of the holy place. They were making atonement over and over and over again for the sins of the people. But our final high priest is sitting down. He doesn't have to go back in to do atonement again. He doesn't have to make a propitiation again. What He offered, He offered once for all, and it totally is finished. And we are seated with Him. We're seated with Christ, meaning we are also testifying to this finished work. We're seated with Him as the result of His finished work. Our very spiritual life is the evidence that it is finished that we're resting in Him, that we're not appealing to anything else to cleanse us. We're not going to some other path trying to find out if there's more righteousness we can earn with God. We're not going somewhere else to say, you know what, that Jesus stuff is nice, but let me see if I can prove how good I am apart from Him. No! No! You're a Christian if you recognize it's finished. And you're resting in the finished work of Christ that there is nothing else left for you to do because your Jesus did it. It's done. Totally, absolutely, completely done. And this has astounding implications. Astounding implications. It means that we have been raised up with Christ, we've been seated with Christ. It means that we share in what Christ has. Scripture says of Christians that you are a fellow heir with Christ. A fellow heir with Christ. You're inheriting what Christ has with Him. It means for the person seeking to earn something from God, this means, this doctrine that's found in plain English here in this passage, It means there is no exaltation left for you to earn. You think that's good news around here? If someone says, yes, I'm saved, but I still have to earn my exaltation in the life afterwards, take them to Ephesians 2.6. Show them the past tense nature of these verbs and tell that person how that can apply to them if they only bow the knee to Jesus and appeal to His righteousness. Because when we receive the righteousness of Christ and we get all that Christ has, what more could there be? What is Jesus lacking? Not a thing. So if you're in Christ, what are you lacking? Not a thing. 
you are totally, completely, thoroughly, exhaust, uh, exhaustively exalted in the spiritual realm right now. Because God says so. You wake up feeling achy. You wake up feeling sinful, irritable. You are in the heavenly realm with Christ right now because your testimony is His finished work. If you were looking to yourself to earn something, yeah, there's a lot of reason for you to say, I'm not exalted. If you're looking to yourself saying, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, I got to do that, I have to make sure I act this way around these people, I got to make sure that I do these things that this guy told me to do, you're never going to be good enough. But if you just simply bow the knee to Jesus, laying aside all your own work, recognizing it as all falling short, in fact, it's sinful, it's rebellious, it's as filthy rags in the eyes of God, and you turn to Christ and you look to an empty cross and say it's empty because He's no longer there. He paid the price and now He's risen and He is in the heavenly places and that's where I can be too if I bow the knee to Jesus. That's how God sees you once for all time. It happens in a moment and it lasts forever. There is no exaltation to earn in this life. In Christ, we have all the spiritual promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God are yes and amen for the believer. You can hang on to those because they're yours in Christ. This means in this life, more of the implications of this, in this life, you can have freedom from sin. You can have freedom from the authority of the prince of the power of the air. You can have freedom from fear. You can have freedom from death in Jesus. All that He has is yours. You can have freedom from the carrot on a stick that someone has put in front of you saying, do a little more and then you can rest. You can, you can throw the stick away and you can look to the tree and you can have rest forever in Jesus. You can have here and now total, absolute security of your position. Because you know when God will do away with you and say, I'm tired of dealing with you, you're done? As soon as He says it to Jesus. You think that's ever going to happen? Will the Father ever abandon the Son? Will the Father ever curse the Son? If you are in Christ, if you've died with Him, if you've been raised with Him, if you're seated in the heavenly realm with Him, you are more secure than you ever could be. You cannot be more secure spiritually than when you're in Jesus. Total, unbreakable fellowship with the triune God of the universe. Nothing can separate you from His love. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for you. Height, depth, any power that's out there, none of it will separate you from the love of the Father because you are in the Son. So for you, Christian, this should be one of the most humbling messages you've ever heard. Because how did this happen to you? God came to you. He did this in your life. Verse 4 starts with, but God, not but you, 
But you made a decision. Where's the hope in that? Where's the certainty in that? You know how fickle you are. God came into your life, and God did this to us. The all-sufficient God, who has no need whatsoever, has chosen to show His goodness through you. He's chosen to make much of Himself in the world as is fitting. He's the Creator. But He's chosen to do it through the means of saving people like you. Isn't that humbling? So until then, Christian, that day when we are finally glorified, when all of the spiritual catches up, all the physical rather, catches up with the spiritual, until then, consider the role of the Word of God in your life. Go back to that nourishment to read what God has done over and over and over again. Hear from God in His Word. Be fed by God Himself by reading the words of God, by being refreshed, by being comforted of this unbreakable fellowship you have with God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He will see it through to the end. God who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. Philippians 1.6. Christian, that's my encouragement for you today. And for the non-Christian, the ones who are trusting in their own righteousness, the ones who are not appealing to the righteousness of Christ alone for salvation, the ones hiding in their sins and covering themselves like Adam, would you come to Jesus? Would you have this Jesus today? Can I make that appeal? I don't know who you are. God knows who you are. But can I make that appeal to you, trusting that God's Spirit will convict you? For the unbeliever, for the non-Christian, for the one who is hoping in his own good works, your life is riddled with hopelessness. Your life has no certainty. It can't have any certainty. You're outside of Christ. You are far from the love of God. You are far from the peace of God. You're covered in fear, and rightfully so. But Jesus can take it all away. Jesus removes all of that. When He brings you in to the family of God, when you're covered in His righteousness alone, all of your appeals are to something outside of yourself that's never changing because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is your anchor. You don't have to be adrift at sea. You don't have to be lost in the darkness. Today, if you hear His voice today in Jesus Christ, you can be brought near once for all and find an anchor for your soul, unmoving, eternally established in Christ. Father, we thank You for this gospel message that You've designed, that You've worked out, that You've delivered to Your people. We thank You for the reality of our spiritual position in Christ, that we are seated 
with Christ, that we have life with Christ, and that no man can change it. Move powerfully in the hearts of your people. Make much of your name through us that we would see you rightly now and for all eternity, bending the knee before you because we owe it to you. We thank you that you did not leave us dead. Those of us who call on Jesus as Lord, but that you came to us and you quickened us and you gave us life with Christ. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. Be with us the rest of this day and throughout the week, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.